We've been looking at three letters over the last two weeks, three letters written to the church directly from the lips of Jesus Christ. It's, it's amazing, isn't it, to have it like this? Um, and I trust that God's words have spoken to you. I trust that His words um, have given you a little insight in how to process the days in which we live right now. Uh, I know they were written 2,000 years ago, but they're as relevant today as they ever were. To process current events um, with spirit-directed hearts and minds. Is that where your heart and your mind's at? With the Holy Spirit infusing with God's Word, telling you, directing you, encouraging you how to respond. How to respond as Jesus would respond not what maybe you even were brought up with in your own home, but what would Jesus have you do and say? This next message is to the church in Thyatira, Thyatira, and it's the longest. It's the longest one of them all. And it's a city that had all these trade guilds that I just referred to briefly last week in the previous cities. Trade guilds flourished, and they flourished in places like Thyatira. And one of the guilds, as a matter of fact, if you uh, will remember, if you've gone through the book of Acts, studied um, how the gospel penetrated the known world back then, um, Paul uh, met this lady, and her name was Lydia. Do you remember? Do you remember that from the book of Acts? And she was a seller of purple cloth, and she came from Thyatira uh, because that was one of the major trades in, 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 in purple dye. All these various trades had guilds, and it's one of the things Jesus hits over and over again with almost every church. They were like these close-knit clubs. They would be like a local union, you know, that, that you might have, and they served as a primary social structure for the workers and for their families in all of these towns and cities. We, we humans, we, we crave social structure. I know we rebel against it all the time, but we crave it. It's something that we really desperately need. And we have all kinds of social structures today that we could compare to some of these guilds that were in Thyatira. We have family gatherings. How many of you are going to a family gathering this afternoon? Oh, I am. Okay, so I just thought... Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's a social structure. It's, it's beautiful. I, I love it. Um, we have soccer team weekends. Yeah, not one of my favorites. Um, there's the local bar. It's a social structure for a lot of people. We have workplace parties. We have social gatherings. We have church small groups. We even have them here at Grace Chapel. Uh, we have school parent-teacher associations, all kinds of social structures. Well, back then, each of these trades also had, along with the, the social structure, they had their own patron deity, an actual idol, um, kind of like a school mascot, except way more serious. Uh, and the primary social events in these cities among all these guilds that everybody needed to be a part of if you wanted to get paid were festive meals. Um, sounds good, right? It's like, sign me up. Food? I mean, how can you go wrong with food, right? Well, their food was served after it had been sacrificed to the patron deity, um, and after that deity was worshipped and the food sacrificed, the people would all gorge and, and eat it. Um, and often these meals, actually more than often, these meals would turn into sexual immorality. 
and there were deity prostitutes and, and all kinds of stuff going on. And, and typically, these were guy-only events. Yeah, so you can figure out the rest. These kinds of religious festivals have been around since Adam and Eve. The worship of deities, the food, the sacrifice, the, the sexual promiscuity. Um, we, see the, we see it for the first time in Scripture when the nation of Israel is delivered by God and He uses Moses to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Remember that? And they come to Mount Sinai and Moses goes up in the mountain. He's going to get the law. He's going to hand it down on the, on the, on the ten laws on the, on the tablets. Remember that? And we read that Israel, in the meantime, is down below the mountain sinning against God and they've created a golden calf. You remember that? The whole golden calf thing? Uh, Mount Sinai, the primary expression of their idolatry was not just direct worship of a golden calf idol, but Exodus 32 records it in verse 6 as it tells us, and they rose up early the next day, offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings to that golden calf, and the people sat down to eat and to drink, and they rose up to play. It's a common human thing. Uh, food, drinking, worship, sex, all at the same time. And the same thing happened about 40 years later to these people. The next generation, they're getting ready to go in the promised land, and they're in the uh, 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 country of Moab. And we're told in Numbers 25 that the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab, and the, these, the daughters of Moab, invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. It's the same issue Paul dealt with 1,400 years later uh, with the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 8 through 10. And in chapter 10, Paul even alludes to both of these events <laughs> to make his point about how a Christian is supposed to live in their day in society. It's what we humans have gravitated towards in many forms since the fall in the garden. Uh, we're really, really good at creating our own gods. We do it all the time. We, we create gods who mimic and allow our sinful desires, whether they're lustful or, or sexually promiscuous or selfish and greedy for wealth or for power. We create those gods. We worship those gods. We eat around those gods. And we worship the gods that we've created in our own fallen image. This is what we do. And it reemerges from time to time, age to age, and you even see it in some Christian ministries today. Back in Thyatira, if a Christian joined one of these guilds in order to get work and to provide for their family, in, in order to be socially accepted in the community and not ostracized, they would have been forced, pressured to participate in these kinds of festive celebrations. Uh, and the city offered all kinds of opportunities to, to, to worship pagan gods, especially uh, the god Apollo, who was the sun god. He was also the son of Zeus, the head god. And if Christians refused to join in, specifically the worship of him, they would have suffered socially and they would have suffered financially. 
Let's get into it. Chapter 2, verse 18. And to the angel, this is what Jesus is telling John to write down, to the church. And to the angel of the church of Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. It's again taken back in the description, that vision that John had of Jesus in chapter 1, where after he saw it, he fell down as if he was dead. That vision, and in, in, in certain portions of that vision of Jesus <clears throat> are borrowed by Jesus himself and appropriately applied to each particular church what they needed to hear about who he was and who he is. For Thyatira, Jesus is what? He's called the Son of God in contrast to Apollo who is the son of Zeus, the patron god of Thyatira. Apollo is a created god. Jesus is the creator god. So he sets that right from the get-go. So everybody, we're all on the same page? Okay, verse 19. I know your works, your love and your faith and your service and your patient endurance. This sounds pretty good, isn't it? And that your latter works exceed the first, unlike Ephesus where their first works kind of drifted away and now they've they've lost their first love. You're different. See, Jesus knows us. This This is what I take from here. Jesus knows his church. Jesus knows his body here on earth. He knows us personally. He knows our deeds. He knows the thoughts that motivate those deeds. He knows why we do what we do. And what Jesus holds high here, he says, is a love for both God and for people, our faith, our service to others. Jesus sees our perseverance. He sees your perseverance as you trust God day in and day out in the middle of difficult circumstances. Not just when things are good, but when things are tough. And these characteristics sum up the Christian life, and Jesus says, well done, Uh, a life of love, a life of faith, a life of hope, awesome. But for most of the churches, there's this, right? Verse Verse 20, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent. Jesus was patient. But she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know when I have struck her children dead that I am he who searches the mind and the heart and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say I will not lay on you any other burden. Jezebel, there's a name, right? I mean, please, that is not the birth name you give to your daughter, right? Are we all clear on that? Jezebel. And back in the Old Testament, she was the wife of King Ahab, a, a, a completely immoral, horrible human being, Ahab. You might remember her um, along with the prophet Elijah in, 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 in 1 Kings. 
He was scared to death of Jezebel before God woke him up. And here in Thyatira, it's obviously not her because she's been dead and gone for centuries, but it's, an, it's her name, and her name is symbolic of who she was. In the Old Testament, she had this negative influence on all the northern tribes of Israel, and she, it was through her devotion to, to pagan worship, specifically the, the god Baal, and worshiping him. And, and she had a very aggressive persecution of any prophet who said he was a prophet of Yahweh, of the Lord. Kills them all. That's why Elijah was afraid. Jezebel's name became an enduring symbol for anything that's idolatrous or wicked. And like her, there's this prophetess in the city who is teaching Christians that they could go ahead and join in with these trade guilds and participate in the pagan worship feasts, and you could do it without compromising your faith. Jesus says that that Christian community should not tolerate her. Jesus actually says, don't even forgive her because she's willing not willing to repent. And these so-called deep secrets of Satan, what are these? It's a mocking description from Jesus' own lips of the true source of her teaching. It really comes from Satan, and it's really not all that deep. It's a portrayal of its true content, what the people in the church thought were deep things from God through this false prophet were actually the deep things of Satan. He's the father of lies. This is what he does. His lies are designed to draw you and I away from the truth and how we should respond and how we should live out in society so that people do see God and they see and hear about Jesus Christ's salvation. Isn't he so clever? I mean, look what he's done to the church over the last year. He's so clever at distraction. He's so clever at misdirection. He's so clever at deception. Today, it's, it's one of the things is like the popular idea or the thought process that some Christians have that allege that you can do whatever you want with your body. And it doesn't really matter because it's not going to affect your true spirituality and your salvation because you got your ticket, right? You got your ticket to heaven so you can live any way you want. Jesus begs to differ. He says, uh uh uh. So, how's a Christian to respond to the pressures that we encounter each and every day? Verse 25 Only hold fast what you have until I come. That is probably not what you're going to hear if we were a wealth, health, prosperity church. <laughs> what you got is what you got. Hang on to it until I come. might not be what you're expecting. You might have been expecting, well, I thought he maybe he'd give me more, <laughs> right? So I got more now? No, we, we've got all we need. You know, don't we all have the same Holy Spirit? Don't we all have the same riches in heaven that God has for us? Verse 26, the one who conquers, the one who hangs in there, the one who keeps my works until the end, whatever the end is for you and for me, to him I'll give authority over the nations. What? 
And he will rule them with an, a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself, this is Jesus speaking, remember, received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. Just hang in there till I come. It's really not going to be that long. And Jesus offers the overcomers in Thyatira a double promise. First, he says that they're going to be given this authority to rule over the nations. Have you ever thought about this? Have you, have you encountered this maybe yet in your, your reading of Scripture? It's an allusion back to the Psalms, especially Psalm chapter 2. If you're taking notes, it's verse 8 and 9. It talks about the coming Messiah, how he's going to rule with a rod of iron. And then later in Revelation chapter 19, um, John is given this vision of the second coming of Jesus Christ, something that you and I are praying for, longing for. The world and creation is groaning for. And it says, And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him, this is Jesus who's coming, on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, we saw that in chapter 1, with which to strike down the nations, coming in judgment, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. So there's, don't ask me to explain it specifically. There's going to be some kind of a delegated power to rule given to those who know Jesus Christ as their Savior. It's a part of the mercy and grace of God that uh, we get to share in some way in Jesus' second coming and in, in, in the coming kingdom. That's all I got, okay? So I'll see you there on the horse. Can, can you all ride? Probably doesn't matter. Second, so that's, just, that's just number one. I mean, if, this, if that wasn't like mind-blowing right there, Second, Jesus is going to give the, uh, the overcomer the morning star. So what is that? Well, if you will remember online, there are notes uh, that go into way more detail than we can cover in a, in a church service about all these uh, specific verses and some of the, uh, the things that we might not be uh, familiar with. And one of them is the morning star. And I give all kinds of options there that men and women have uh, postulated over the years. You can see the notes. But let me just narrow it down here. I see the best of all those options connecting with Jesus. Because in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 16, guess what he's called? The bright morning star. So the way I read this is I get Jesus. Isn't that more than enough? Verse 29. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's how he ends, how Jesus ends all these letters to all seven churches. Because Jesus understands our human heart. Don't think he's off somewhere and he doesn't get it. He so gets what you and I are going through on a daily basis. And he judges fairly and he judges accordingly. And we need to judge our neighbors. We need to judge our family members with Jesus' kind of wisdom, not human wisdom. To see the real picture, as he presents it here, of our reality on this planet and where we're going. 
that the pleasures and the material securities that can come to us by compromising our faith will result in disappointment every time. As King Solomon described it in the book of Ecclesiastes, it's vanity, it's futility. As Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, do nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing. I don't care, no, not even that. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. I don't know about you, but I've walked with God for, well, over 40 years now. I'm still working on that. Are you? So, what, what, by the way, what do you think of Jesus' statement here to this church in uh, verse 23 where he says, I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. See the connection between what we are on the inside and what comes out on the outside, and Jesus judges accordingly to that? Jeremiah chapter 10, uh, 17, verse 10 says, if, says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. There is this theme of judgment according to our works and our deeds throughout the entire New Testament. Uh, Jesus teaches it clearly. Paul teaches it, Peter teaches it, John teaches it not only in his gospel, but here in the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the term judgment doesn't always or necessarily always mean something negative. Um, To judge can mean to repay or to give a a reward for a life of faithfulness. So when somebody says to you, you know, they might casually say, "Ah, I don't don't like the Bible, there's too much judgment in there. You can say, well, wait a minute, a lot of that judgment's good. It just depends on what side you're on. Salvation by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ results in good works. Very clear from Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. What you and I do this afternoon, wherever you find yourself, will be public evidence of the reality of a personal and a living faith. So, who are you going to play for today? What audience do you typically like to please? My prayer for our family here at Grace Chapel is that we play for the only audience that really matters. The pressures on the, on the believers in Thyatira, as you read it, and some of the other churches were, were huge. They're like things you and I have not experienced yet. Could be coming. But we haven't gone this deep in pressure yet. And, and for what they're getting, they're getting it from the business community. It's, it's economics. Uh, it's always about the money, isn't it? <laughs> no matter whether it's worship or not, money's always got its hand in there. And today, you and I as Christians, we're we're tempted to compromise in order to fit in. Um, We we try to fit in with our materialistic culture because everybody else is, and so so what we wear is really important. Some of you say, please speak, don't go there, don't go there. I, I have to. What we wear, what we watch, what we drive, come on, 
You look around. You see what everybody's driving. What we say and how we say it. What do we do with the resources that God has graced us with and trusted us with? Um, What will we compromise in order to get more? At the heart of this temptation can also lie, and I'm sure the the believers in Thyatira had this also, it's a a desire to be socially accepted. You know, I grew up in the, mainly through my salvation in the 70s and the 80s, my early years in the church, and there was such a drive to be accepted by the culture. I think it still is today, but it was huge back then, And, and the whole church reshaped itself in order to be more accepted by the culture. We, we want to please the right people. It's that, it's that search for significance thing, you know, that our culture calls finding yourself. You've ever, you ever heard that? Did anybody tell you? Oh, great, you're finding yourself. I'm pretty sure Jesus said, lose yourself and find me. I, I think I could be quoted on that. So you and I have a daily choice, just like the believers in Thyatira, about which audience matters most. Um, Powerful people who claim to offer us security, um, who guarantee us social significance, we will be accepted, or Jesus Christ, who offers us everything. It's no wonder that this message for you and I today, in the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ, stresses the uniqueness of Jesus revealed as the Son of God and the Judge because it's only through Him. He is the only one who knows this completely inside out. And He is the only one who is able to give you and I a lasting reward. Next church, Sardis, chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. This letter is the most negative. Yeah, so we're going to be a Debbie Downer today. All right, sorry. Um, But it's Sardis. In Sardis, the Christians looked a whole lot like everyone else. In America, the church can face the temptation, as we just saw with Thyatira also, to look a lot like everyone else. Because there's less persecution that way, right? Um, There's less social awkwardness in your family or at work or at school that way. So what does Jesus think of all that? Because that's all that really matters. Verse 1, and to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, we've, we've looked at this already in the past, I know your works. Jesus holds the power. He holds all the authority. And Jesus knows what Sardis was doing, and it isn't good. You, may, you have, he says, the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Do we really understand our true spiritual condition? Everyone may think they're alive and well and everything's functioning and everything's moving forward and everybody's happy and people love us. Oh, it's great. You should hear all the good things people say about us. They even say nice things about us behind our back. And Jesus pronounces them dead <laughs> or, or about to die. And he, then he goes on, he'll go on to say that a few of you, you're kind of like on life support. That's where you're at. 
Verse 2, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. Remember then that you, what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. And Jesus applies shock paddles five times to the failing heart of the Christian's in this city. He says, number one, first shock, wake up. Uh, realize your condition. Be willing to, to do something about it. Don't sit there Sunday after Sunday or at home during the week, read God's Word and go, oh, that's great. Yeah, I really need to change. And that's it. It's, it's, it's you know, like, it's like uh, James says, look in the mirror and you see a little bit of dirt on your face. What do you do before you go out for the evening? You wash it off. You take care of it. You wouldn't go out into public with dirt on your face and embarrass yourself, would you? If you knew, if you'd seen it? Why would you go out and embarrass Jesus? Like, what's up with that? Strengthen, second shock. Those of us who at certain times in our Christian experience might be on the verge of a kind of spiritual death we need a support system. Because while our deeds may seem perfectly acceptable to ourselves and to our family and even to people in the church and the surrounding society, they are coming up way short, Jesus says, from God's standard. And God, from God's perspective, their works are weak. You think they're strong, but they're weak. And they desperately need, third shock, remember. Remember what you received way back in the beginning when you first got saved. Remember what you heard. Remember how it broke you, how it sent you to your knees, namely the truth, the truth of the faith that was taught by Jesus Christ, passed on to the apostles, written down in Scripture that you and I get to handle, the Word of God. Remember. But you got to do more than just recall Scripture. Memorizing Scripture is great. But if that's all you're doing, you've got to, number four, keep. You've got to obey it. You've got to live out these truths. Make them real in your everyday life with your friends and your, your parents and your kids, which always seems to involve the fifth shock. Repentance. Have you noticed, as I have, there's a recurring theme in all the churches, and it's the word repentance? It's just over and over again. Interesting, the same then as it is now. Verse 3, if you will not wake up, I'm going to come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I come against you. I got, I got to ask this question. Do you and I really want Jesus to come? To come around here with this kind of judgment? I think you're all saying no, right? This thief image, this, this sudden appearing image is used almost everywhere else in Scripture, most places, for the second coming of Jesus Christ. Here Jesus plays off his own second coming. 
language. That, that wonderful, anticipated, prayed for future climax of human history when he burst through the clouds to warn about another sudden and unexpected judgment for his church here and now. Jesus had a way with words, didn't he? Uh, could he ever spin a phrase? Look at verse 4. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. There's a couple of you, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Um, there's always a faithful few. The problem is <laughs> oh, that the ones who are missing the whole point about what the Christian experience an existence in this present world is supposed to look like, think they are the faithful few. So who are the faithful? How do you and I know whether we're one of them? Jesus says, those of you who have resisted moral and spiritual compromise are a part of the faithful few. And you can anticipate walking with Jesus dressed in white. White, white garments often symbolize uh, positive things in the book of Revelation, things like purity, things like holiness, things like victory over sin. Here their worthiness is connected again to their works, specifically to the works that a Christian by the power of the Holy Spirit can remain loyal to Jesus Christ no matter what the circumstances and refuse to be polluted by their pagan surroundings. Verse 5, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. The book of life. Is your name written in it? Do you know? The book of life is the register of all true believers who have been granted heavenly citizenship. We're, we're in the kingdom, and nothing can blot out that name. Um, my name is in that book. I can say that with utter confidence. Is yours. Each of these cities in Asia Minor had citizenship records, registers. And the royal archives for all the registered name for all of Asia Minor, Minor guess what city it was in? Sardis. So a person's name could be erased from that register if they committed an act, a crime worthy of being erased for which Christians could easily be guilty of by refusing to join in with these guilds and to do emperor worship. And the way Jesus phrases it here, it conveys the sense of a guaranteed security to all true believers some of those true believers who would have likely had their name erased, especially from the local synagogue if they were a part of that, because as soon as you confess Jesus as the Messiah, you're a blasphemer. And if you're no longer on the Jewish register in the synagogue, as we saw last week, you would be then vulnerable to persecution from the Roman government because you wouldn't be exempt any longer from idol and emperor worship because you were a Jew. Your name had been erased. Your country, your family, even maybe someday your place of worship may erase you. 
but you are always assured of citizenship in God's kingdom come. I will confess, verse 5, his name before my Father and before his angels. What's more, Jesus himself will confess your name. Our Savior will stand before the Father and name your name. It will be worth it all when I see Jesus. He who has an ear, verse 6, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The key here is reputation. We want that, right? Don't we want a good reputation? But we want the right kind of good reputation. This church was oblivious to its true spiritual state. We can be oblivious to what's going on in our heart of hearts. This church thought it was currently well regarded by the Chamber of Commerce, and that's what was important. We need to hear Jesus' message to the church. First, it's not what you've done in the past that matters most. It's what you're willing to allow God to do through you and in you now that matters most. Secondly, God's standard is fundamentally different than our human standards, even as Christians living in the world. His ways are not our ways. And we will be held accountable to a divine standard, not a human standard. If you sense today that, or maybe in the coming days, as maybe things get darker, that you're spiritually tired, you're just worn out, or maybe even you would say, I think I'm spiritually dying. And you want to experience a, a spiritual revival you have to take certain actions. It's what Jesus says over and over again here in, to these seven churches. So keeping with the medical metaphor that Jesus introduces here, a patient cannot just do anything and expect to get better. You know, um, the doctor says, um, you've got this ailment, okay, you've got this thing going on in your life, and um, you, you, you just can't go home and do nothing, right? When he, when he tells you what the problem is. And, and especially you can't keep on doing, continuing to do what it is that's causing the ailment in the first place. Doctor says, your heart will stop <laughs> if you don't stop eating this particular food, right? And you say, give me a double helping. Well, how's that going to work out? The five commands that we were just given, the five paddle shock treatments we were given in verses 2 to 3 summarize what is most important from Jesus Christ's point of view, the only point of view that matters. Wake up. Take a look into the Word of God and realize your, your situation. The Word of God will tell you if you're on life support or not. And then strengthen what does remain and remember the historic Christian faith by which you were transformed from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And embrace it, which will usually necessitate a change of heart and a change of actions, which is usually called repentance. A dying church, a dying Christian can become healthy again if they follow the great 
physician's prescription. We all have responsibilities to each other, right? Um, Because we're in the same local church family. But we are primarily accountable to God. It's before Him that I will stand, that you will stand at the end of every day. And on a future day, yet to be determined for each of us, we're going to give an account. I mean, that's coming. That's a reality. So we should not rate human opinion too highly. We should not get depressed when we're criticized, and we shouldn't get too elated when we're flattered because it really doesn't matter. So I have some advice for us to pray about and consider. In the church, one of the most dangerous places to be is alone. When you don't have others helping you, keeping you accountable to move forward. You're going to be like an ice cube in a glass of room temperature water. You will melt. And that is why each of us must reach out, especially in the days we live. Reach out to minister to others on behalf of the Father in the name of Jesus Christ for spiritual, physical, every kind of circumstance you can think of. And that begins with a reminder about something that we all together forget the power of prayer. We have, we have harped on this on Sundays for the last year. How powerful, how amazing the prayer to our Heavenly Father is and can be and should be in our lives, not only individually but corporately. If we, if we just zeroed in even praying for each other for, for like one or two things, Things that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt are part of God's perfect will for each of us. What could that be? Holiness. Guarantee you, that's God's will for your life. (laughs) A victory over sin. Guarantee. Um, Things like humility. Um, Biting your tongue. God's will for your life. And if you lack any of these things, patience, self-control, there is arguably only one reason. And James says in James 4, 2, you do not have because you do not ask. Would you rise with me and let's pray together? We can't do this enough, and we need to be sure we're always asking. Heavenly Father, we've been reminded through these letters to the church of 2,000 years ago We've been reminded of all the things that have not changed one iota. And Lord, you are still the same. And we are still sinners saved by grace. We are infused and dwelt by your Holy Spirit. And to minister in your name in the community in which you've placed us. And Lord, we pray for holiness. We pray for long-suffering. We pray for patience. 
We pray for your will to be done and for eyes to be opened when they hear the truth. We pray for courage. We pray for determination. That, Lord, we may be seen through your eyes as faithful, regardless of what the community thinks. And, Lord, we, we pray that we go forward with this, with this resolve. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.